0: morning you may be watching this or maybe here and you feel like you're a good person and that God should weigh out your good deeds and your bad deeds. But listen, I love you too much to let you off the hook with that. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit ThisIsShoreline.com. I'm sad, but that's the last time we're going to see that intro video. I know you're really bummed about that because you like 80s music. Um, But we'll have a new kind of theme uh, as we go into Romans, uh, the rest of Romans chapter 3. So look with me at verse 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. Worthless. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Now imagine with me for a minute that you, you are sitting in a court of law where you are being accused of Crimes that are worthy of death. I just want you to picture what that scene would look like. The prosecuting attorney has just listed a series of charges against you, and there is such overwhelming evidence and eyewitness support that you're guilty, and you know it, and you begin to slink lower and lower and lower in your chair. The guilt of your crimes beginning to show on the redness of your flush face as the remorse begins to sink in. Just picture this for a minute. The law is read against you and you, along with everyone else in the courtroom, well, you know that you're guilty and you're going to be condemned for your crimes. Well, then suddenly your counsel, your defense lawyer, stands up and he kind of fixes his suit and he begins to pull out every single last greasy move in the greasy lawyer's playbook. He tries to argue with the fairness of the law. He tries to argue, is this even realistic for the average person to even be capable of keeping? He tries to argue, well, my client didn't know about the laws that were broken. And though he, because of that, he shouldn't be guilty. Uh, he tries to say, my client isn't normally like this. So maybe, maybe this, this is just an exception. He's a nice guy. She's a nice gal. So we can just let this one go, can't we? In fact, your lawyer tries to show evidence of how much nicer you are than anyone else in the community, especially your neighbors. And he begins to present a long list of really evil things that have been done in the world. And those are way worse than anything that you have ever done by comparison. So because of that, you should then be not guilty. And then he starts to pull some things out like, this person's family is important or their ancestors were really vital people. And listen, this is a wealthy person. And it's not fair that someone of this wealth and prominence be put in the same prison as those who are degenerate. But see, the judge and the jury is not having any of it. And so they ask him to take his seat, but as a last resort, he stands up and yells out, and I think we have a picture, this is what your greasy lawyer looks like, right? It's this kind of guy, right? And so he stands up and he says, this whole system is corrupt. It's the judge's fault. If the judge is good, why does he keep sending people to death row? Maybe I'll go out. Maybe I'll go out and I'll commit the same crimes as my client here to show you guys how corrupt this judge actually is. And the judge says, you're held in contempt of court. And they escort him out of the room. And meanwhile, you kind of sit kind of wide-eyed Uh, unflinching, realizing that you should not have found your lawyer on fiverr.com. So we can take that guy's picture down, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Since chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, that's exactly what's been happening. Maybe you missed it, but you and I have been standing in a courtroom. And Paul, as the prosecuting attorney, has been presenting his case for the guilt of all mankind who deserve the judgment of God. And the Gentile world, as we've seen, has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and has been given over by God to a debased mind. And the Israelites have been boasting of God's law even as they've been breaking it. So both the unrighteous and the self-righteous are guilty. Paul has even cross-examined the defendant who up until chapter three, verse eight, has done everything he can to question the fairness of this looming judgment. And he has tried to seek to cast suspicion on the judge and on the system and even the law itself. But whether the person knows the law and is under the law or not, the guilt still remains. And as John Stott says, the whole human race has been arraigned and condemned. So in our text today, Paul provides what I would consider to be his closing argument before resting his case. But then what he does in verse 9 through 20 is that he concludes with saying this, Oh, your honor, I have one more witness to bring to the stand. And that is the rest of the Old Testament, not necessarily the Torah. And what we're going to see in our text today is six witnesses selected purposely by Paul, not from... The first five books of our Bible, not from the law, but from the Psalms and Isaiah. And these six witnesses collectively indict every single one of us. Every single one of us are guilty of the horror of sin. And so we are going to see our indictment this morning. In fact, if we were going to look at our text this morning and break it down, we're going to see three things about sin. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 9 through 12, that sin is universal. Uh, We're also secondly going to see that sin is pervasive In verses 13 through 18, but then we're gonna see how it's defined in verses 19 and 20. Or you could say, at the beginning, we're gonna see the charge, and then in the middle, the indictment, and then at the end, the verdict. And listen, it's not the Nazis or that politician you can't stand who's only guilty before God. It is you and it is me. It is the whole human race. So we're gonna see the depth of our depravity in these verses together. Aren't you so glad you came to church this morning to learn about the depravity of your own condition? Well, uh, it's glorious bad news, and that's what makes the glorious good news that much more glorious. So look at verse 9. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So This is where we're going to learn where sin is universal. Now, verse 9, if you notice the train of thought that Paul has been giving us, this seems like a contradiction to what Paul just said in verses 1 and 2. Look back at verses 1 and 2. He had just said, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision, much in every way? And now here he's saying, are the Jews any better off? And you might think, well, yeah, I, I guess, based on what you just said. But his answer is no. No, the Jews aren't any better off. So Paul's point, don't miss it here. His point is that the Jews may have the advantage, but that doesn't mean they have favoritism. Their advantage over the Gentile doesn't equal exemption from God's perfect standard. So please underline verse nine for me uh, because this is Paul's main point. Both Jews and Greeks are, and here's the phrase, under sin. Would you circle those two words or highlight them? All people are under sin sin. The Greek, just to impress you this morning, is hupo hemartien. Uh, Hupo means to be under the authority of or in the power of. So remember when Jesus met the centurion and the centurion had a sick servant? And remember the the centurion tells Jesus, you don't even have to visit my house. I understand the authority that you have. You you are like me. Uh, I'm a man under authority. And I have a hundred men who are under my own authority. And so my soldiers are under my, their hoopo, under my command. So, Jesus, just use your authority to say the word, and my servant will be well. Remember that? So, that's the phrase here. That's the word. It's, it means to be under the authority or in the power of. And hamartian is that word that's most prominently used in our New Testament for sin, it means to miss the mark or to err. And so Paul means that both Jews and Greeks, which means all people, are under the power or the control of sin. They're under its authority, and there's really no way of escape. There's no one who is born of Adam from a male and a female who's been born, who is like outside of the power of sin. So here's what John Stott says. He says, Paul appears almost to personify sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race, imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. Sin is on top of us, weighs us down, and is a crushing burden. So then starting in verse 10, Paul begins to call six references from the Old Testament. And he begins with Psalm 14. So notice in your Bibles, verses 10 through 12, he says, as it is written, and it's written in the Psalms. And then you should, in the ESV, have quotes here. This is one continuous quote. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, what I want us to do, and we did this kind of as a uh, teaser last week, but we're going to hold our places here in Romans, and let's go over to Psalm chapter 14. So turn with me in your Bibles to, or swipe to Psalm 14. Some people are unaware we do have uh, the Bible app. If you go on events and look... For Shoreline, uh, you uh, will be able to follow the notes every week in our sermons on the Bible app. So look at Psalm 14, starting in verse 1. If you're following us at home, you want to make sure and uh, pull up your Bible, uh, pull out your Bible, because we are not going to put it on the screen. But Psalm 14 says this, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together, they have become corrupt. There is no one or none who does good, not even one. So, with your eyes in the text, notice with me who this is according to our heading. It says that this is uh, by David, and notice who the fool is. Who is the person who says in their heart there is no God? It's a fool. The fool is the one who, as we've been learning, they reject general revelation. Uh, They craft for themselves a narrative where there's no creator, where there's kingdom without a king, where there's a world with scientific laws and order, but there's no supernatural force to which this science overwhelmingly points. So the fool is the one who praises the well-designed watch, even as he rejects that there may be a designer. The fool is the one who suppresses the truth of God, like holding that submerged beach ball underwater. But while he's doing that awkwardly, turns around and asks you to prove that the beach ball even exists. And that, my friend, is the fool. And so contrary to the wisdom of this world, the fool is not the one who prays out loud to someone who's not perceivably there. The fool is not the one who looks at the evidence for an intelligent designer and then yields their heart in worship and faith to him. The fool is not the one who investigates the claims of Christ and researches the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth, and then in faith cries out, my Lord and my God. These are not the fool. The fool is the one who stubbornly refuses to acknowledge that God exists because of arrogance, ignorance, blindness, and folly. And so David goes on in Psalm 14 to say that Yahweh has examined all of mankind To see, is there anyone alive? Is there anyone understanding? Is there anyone who seeks after God? Did you make the cut? Maybe you're the one exception. But make no mistake, if God says there are none, it means he didn't miss one or two. There are none who seek after God. They are all corrupt. There's no one who does good. Someone might say, well, hold on, pastor. What about Adam? Uh, I would say Adam wasn't righteous. He was innocent. He didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. So as it turns out, according to David, all, all mankind has turned aside and have together become corrupt. Now in Romans chapter three, don't turn back there yet, Paul uses the word worthless. He says they have become worthless. And that's an interesting word in the Greek that you would use to describe milk that had turned sour. Don't show your hands here, but has anyone been that guy? You pour a bowl of cereal and then you dump the milk. I say dump because the milk kind of comes out onto the cereal. And then you just go, eh, it's probably not that bad. And then you go for it anyway. Uh, It's worthless. It's corrupted. It's gone bad. Thus, it's useless. Now you might say, well, hold on, hold on. Maybe David had a bad day. Maybe David was angry at his enemies or maybe his teenagers did something to set him off. And so he's looking, all are corrupt. You know, all are wicked. There is no one who does good, especially my teenage daughter. Right? Maybe, maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe the copyist just made a mistake and the Bible didn't really mean this. Well, if you have free time later today, go read Psalm 53. And in that Psalm, you'll read almost the exact same verses word for word. So this is not an anomaly. David had taught his children the wisdom that he had, this same wisdom that in the world there is no one righteous. So even years later, his son Solomon would write this in Ecclesiastes 7.20. He said, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So apparently, young Solomon was listening to dad's theology in dad's worship music, and he picked up on the fact that there are none who do good. So there's the charge church. Sin is universal. All who have descended from Adam are under the authority and corruption of sin, even your sweet saint of a grandma. So, so how many are sinners? And the implied answer, what's the implied answer? How many in the world are sinners? All. And how many are righteous? What's the implied answer? None. Good, you've been paying attention. So, so that's the charge, okay? All are under sin. Now let's see the indictment. And this is, this is difficult for us to see this. Stay in the Psalms. And the best way for us to do this, since we're going through Romans, is we're going to uh, look on the screen at the text in Romans while we're still in the Psalms, okay? Uh, so let's look at this idea about sin being pervasive. Notice on the screen, verse 13 of Romans 3, it says, Paul says, their throat, another quote, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So what has become corrupted here? What has become corrupted is speech. And I think that's important that Paul starts out with that. Is there anyone who can say, I have truly tamed my tongue? You see, sin has pervaded uh, all areas of our life, including and probably first off, our speech. And it's corrupted it to the core. And so Paul provides three scripture references to talk about our speech and kind of front loads his indictment with the tongue. And so if you're in the Psalms, look at Psalm 5. Flip over to Psalm chapter 5. We're going to read the first one, first of these three that have to do with speech. And David is going to begin this psalm asking for God to listen to his prayer as he desires to walk in righteousness and loyal love before Yahweh. And then he draws a contrast between that and the haughty, wicked liars who are standing before God as well. So notice verse 8 with me. In Psalm 5, he says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there, here it is, there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is, self, uh, is destruction. And there, here's the quote Paul uses. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And notice what David goes on to say. He says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they've rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. So notice with me, there's no truth in their mouth, but what comes out is death. And this includes the lie of flattery, of flattering someone. Instead of speaking truth, we speak lies. We deceive, we flatter. So instead of words of life, we produce the aroma of death with our fallen speech. And so his point here is that from right out of the get-go, our speech is not necessarily what it was intended to do, which is to bring life, to encourage, to lift up, to um, you know, build up someone who's created in the image of God. Rather, we, we send out death and deception. Well, let's look at our next reference to the, to the tongue in Psalm 140. So now we're going to bounce to the back end of the psalm, Psalm 140. To turn there with me. And we're going to look on the screen at the second half of verse 13 in Romans 3. He says, the venom of asps is under their lips. Okay. Notice Psalm 140, 1 through 3. Paul, or uh, not Paul, David says, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men, preserve me from violent men. And here's what they're doing. They're planning evil things in their heart and they stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of asps. Okay, notice that David's saying, deliver me. Lord, keep me away from these people. They're planning evil things in their heart and they're just stirring up war and they're gonna pronounce war and they're gonna declare war against me. But notice that he says their, their tongue is as sharp as a serpent's. Uh, and we know obviously uh, Serpents would have, you know, venomous snakes have their uh, not necessarily sharp tongues, they have sharp teeth. Uh, and yet, it was believed in, by the ancients that it was the teeth and it was the mouth itself, which isn't incorrect. It is the mouth itself that the venom comes from. Uh, and so, his point is the, the, what's inside the mouth of a viper is not going to be beneficial to you, it's going to kill you. It is venom. Uh, now, He's kind of building a case here. There's death, deception, it's, it's twisted, it's, it's evil, it's not intending good but harm. Now notice the next reference, Romans 3.14 on the screen. Uh, this again is speech. He says in another quote, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now we're going back and forth, but turn with me to Psalm 10. You guys are doing well. Psalm chapter 10. And we're going to start in verse 7. Again, he's quoting. He's already quoted uh, from the law. Now he's quoting from the Psalms. So in verse 7, he says, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Well, whoa, who's he talking about? Whose mouth? We well, have to work backwards. Verse 6 tells us that this person talks to himself proudly Verse 5, rewind a little bit, says this person's always doing well. They have no care in the world. Rewind, verse 4, says this guy's prideful and like the fool says there is no God. But, oh, there it is, the wicked. So the wicked one's mouth is filled with cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief, and iniquity. Uh, One person noted that such cursing men are cursed men. And so Paul is building a case from David that the wicked person's mouth, their speech, the evidence for their speech comes forward in a court of law, and the evidence, is is it righteous or is it sinful? It's sinful. It's corrupted. It's filled with curse, bitterness, deception, iniquity, and death. And so it is corrupt speech like soured milk. It's worthless. It's useless. Well, that's our speech. What about our feet? What about the, the places we go and the decisions we make? Look on the screen, Romans thirteen, fifteen through 17. So this is the next quote. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Uh, so now what we're going to do for a minute is we're going to leave the Psalms and just go right to the book of Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 59. We're going to go back to the Psalms for the last reference, so don't get uh, too far away from there. But look at Psalm, uh, Isaiah 59.1. Isaiah 59.1 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so what happens right after this is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, begins to dress down the Israelites. And he begins to describe how their sin had pervaded their hands, their lips, their thoughts, so much so that they were filled with injustice. And so he likens them to spiders, to spiders that would spin a web of deception to trap their victims. This is an awful picture of what's supposed to be God's covenant people. So notice verse 7. This is what Paul quotes. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no justice in their past. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows shalom or peace. So note how much violence and destruction are in the thoughts and in the paths and in the ways of an unfaithful people. One commentator said, if you want to know violence for further details, simply read the current news. And isn't that true? Today, when you want to be discouraged, turn on the news. We see fear, we see violence, we see corruption, we see crime, we see apathy, we see despair on the nightly news broadcasts. And that happens in a culture that has been turned over or given over to a debased mind. So this people, God's people, just like all people today, don't understand what it means to be whole, what it means to be living shalom, living peace, living in kind of where everything is is the way it's supposed to be, where it's right. Uh, There's violence, there's selfishness, and there's corruption in every avenue, in every uh, corner of the world. And so Paul's making that point by quoting from uh, from Isaiah. But let's look at the sixth and final reference, and then we'll go back to Romans 3. Uh, let's look on the screen. Romans 3.18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And for this reference, go back to the Psalms, to Psalm 36. Again, lots lots of eyewitness accounts from the Psalms and Isaiah. Psalm 36, again, David, look at verse one. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Notice this, verse two, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So here you could say the eyes are corrupted. The unbeliever doesn't fear God whom he stands in front of, but instead he pulls a mirror out and begins to flatter himself in the mirror. You look pretty good, bro. And begins to talk about how awesome he is, even though he's standing before a holy God. No fear of God. Back in verse 11 of Romans 3, this same sinner doesn't seek after God. So just consider the godlessness of our sin. We don't seek after God. In fact, we don't even fear God. We live our lives with no regard to a moral law or moral lawgiver. Paul is bringing a case against all people, and he's trying to show that man is is corrupt, that man is under the influence of sin, that man is depraved. Now, some people have heard the phrase total depravity and they have maybe misunderstood it and they've used the definition of what is utter depravity. And utter depravity is different. Utter depravity means each and every human being has corrupted themselves to the fullest extent and they're only performing evil all the time, 100% of the time. And that's kind of like the state of the world before the flood of Noah. But that's different than total depravity. When we use the phrase total depravity, we are meaning the totality of our corruption in its extent, not its degree. So what I mean by that is the corruption of sin has reached down and affected all of creation. So if we were to use cancer as an analogy, the extent of cancer has impacted each of your systems, but it doesn't mean every single cell of your body has full-blown stage four cancer. You wouldn't be alive if that were the case. Uh, it, means, no, it means, though, that cancer is present throughout the entire body, the entirety of the body, okay? So what, what this idea that Paul's trying to get at is there isn't a part of our humanity that the stain of sin has not spoiled. Does that make sense? Are you with me? That, so he's using the law and the other writings outside of the law, Uh, To prove a point to the Jew. And so let's head back to Romans 3 and look at verses 19 and 20, because he's trying to make a case specifically to the Jew from their own scriptures. And this is Paul's final argument and his final statement before we get to next week, the glorious good news of a righteousness that's been revealed from heaven apart from the law. So look at verse 19. This is how sin is defined. And again, he's speaking to the Jew. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, stay with me. Here, Paul is speaking to that self righteous Jew. They've been sitting there in the courtroom. And they kind of are scratching their beard, maybe. They've just heard six references from the Hebrew scriptures quoted to them. And Paul, remember, he's already indicted the Gentile unbelieving world. And through these quotes, he's arguing that the Jew is included in the all have sinned camp. He's trying to show that from their own scripture. So what he's saying here in verses 19 and 20 is that the law speaks to those under the law so that every mouth, including the mouth that belongs to the descendant of Abraham, will be stopped, and the whole world held accountable to God. Uh, Stopping mouths. One person quipped that stopping mouths is a difficult business. Wouldn't you agree? Especially when you're parents of young kids. It's difficult to stop mouths. So at this point, no more defense, no more excuses. The whole world stands guilty. No one's exempt. And then in verse 20, Paul shoots down that last minute argument that the self-righteous Jew would pull out of his hat, which is, I'm trying my best to keep the law and that should be enough. And so Paul says, no, no human being will be justified by keeping the works of the law. That wasn't the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was like a mirror to expose us to truth. So I look in the mirror, you look in the mirror, less and less these days, maybe. But when we do look in the mirror, it's to do what? It's to be discouraged. No, it's to, it's to gain a point of reference. We, I've found out that this is a great trick, that these, um, these clothing stores, they put skinny mirrors in the dressing room. So you look better in their clothes. Then you get home, you're like, this looks horrible. But the skinny mirror makes you look you know five pounds less. But what does the mirror do? The mirror is a reference point. When I look in the mirror, I have a reference point. Sometimes I need a shave. Other times I need some, maybe put some more hair product in. But the mirror is powerless to shave me. The mirror is powerless to fix my bedhead. What does it do? It reveals my condition, but it's powerless to change my condition. John MacArthur says it this way. There's no salvation through the keeping of God's law because sinful man is utterly incapable of doing so. He has neither the ability nor the inclination within himself to obey God perfectly. So you and I, not the person next to you, well, they'll be there as well, but you and I are in the court, your attorneys being led out for contempt of court. And at the last minute, he shakes the bailiff off of him. He runs back in. He says, okay, your honor, one more thing. Can my client just try their best to be a good citizen from now on? Is that good enough to erase all of the crimes that they've committed? And we all know the answer to that question. And next week, we'll see the glorious answer to all of this bad news. And we'll see the diamond that stands in front of the blackness of our rebellion and the wrath of God against ungodliness. Why don't we get a glimpse of it now? Look at verse 21. I can't leave us there. We have to look. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What glorious good news. And that is ours in Christ. Now, it shouldn't be difficult for us to apply this text to our lives today. This is an easy one. We have already looked at the blackness of our sin for weeks now. And so this shouldn't be... Uh, too hard. The Spirit's probably already convicting us in different ways even now. But here's how we're going to apply this in kind of three ways. Number one, uh, as we consider this week, we call it Holy Week, as we consider the fact that this week is the week that we celebrate Christ coming into Jerusalem, riding the foal, the the colt of a donkey, who came and he cleared the temple. He partook of the Last Supper with his disciples Uh, He preached on the kingdom uh, to the Jews, and then eventually uh, he was standing before Pilate and standing before the Pharisees and the scribes who said, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. And then, of course, led up to Golgotha, where he bore in his body on the tree our sin and the wrath of God. And then, of course, on Sunday, he rose again triumphantly. And so as we go into this week, Let's together, collectively recognize the horror of sin in our own life. When we read about deceiving liars and flatterers and people who walk in violence, and there's kind of an out there-ness to that, right? We kind of go, well, that's, yeah, this world is corrupt and wicked. And instead of looking inwardly, and we find it sometimes hard to confess or even show an awareness of our sin. Uh, I met with a couple this week, and um husband and wife, and the wife said at one point in her Christian walk, she was asking God to show her the depth of her sin. And she said, wrong prayer. Lord, Lord, please don't. Please don't, you know, just like a half second in. Uh, She saw the filth of her sin. Never mind, Lord. (laughs) Um, We can't even begin to fathom the depth of our depravity, the blackness of our rebellious hearts before a holy and perfect God. But if you want to, yeah, ask God, show me, Lord, the horror of my sin. Reveal it to me that I would be repentant. The posture of a debased mind is to look at yourself and go, I'm not really that bad compared to so-and-so. But as John Stott reminds us, sin is the revolt of the self against God. It's the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-destruction or self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. This morning, you may be watching this, you may be here, and you feel like you're a good person and that God should weigh out your good deeds and your bad deeds. But listen, I love you too much to let you off the hook with that. That's just not what the Bible teaches. You and me and all are under sin and we're guilty before a holy God. So I implore you stop blaming others. Stop minimizing your sin and maximizing others to make yourself look better. Recognize the horror of sin in your own life. It was so wretched that it required the Son of God to enter humanity and die as a sacrifice in your place. Now, it's only possible to recognize the horror of your sin by doing this second thing. Number two, damn your pride. Now, I don't use that word as profanity. I would never use profanity in a sermon. What I mean by that is your pride is damnable. So crush it, mortify it, kill it. Send it packing, whatever phrase you want to use. Destroy it, because if you don't, it will destroy you. Charles Spurgeon told of a Hindu and a Christian missionary who were dialoguing. Uh, don't put that quote up yet, but they were dialoguing about how the Hindu believed that if he ate any animal substance, he would die. And the missionary told him, well, every time you take a drink of water, there are lots of microscopic creatures in that water. And that's kind of a ridiculous notion. And the Hindu unbeliever scoffed at him. He said, that is not true. Well, then the missionary pulled up a microscope and showed him a drop of water. And when he saw the innumerable living creatures living in that drop of water, what was his response? Uh, This Hindu broke the microscope. (laughs) That was his way of settling the question. And so here's what Spurgeon goes on to say. He says, so when we meet with persons who say, our works are pure and clean and excellent, we bring the great microscope of the law of the Lord and we bid them look through that. When they do look through it and discover that even one sinful thought destroys their hope of salvation by self-righteousness and when they see a whole host of sins in one of their prayers or acts or thoughts, then they're angry with the preacher. They try to break the microscope. But for all that, the truth remains. Listen, I love you, but your pride will damn you. So I challenge you to damn your pride, to recognize it as the diabolical existential threat it is to you. So just because you haven't had your day in God's courtroom does not mean it's not scheduled. You see, the crazy part of this courtroom drama is that the only way to be free is to stop defending yourself and to lay your defense down and declare, I am guilty. And I do deserve the just judgment and I do deserve the penalty for my crime And I'm not going to place my faith in myself or in my good works, but in the finished work of one who was perfect, who kept the law for me, and who laid down his life to take my place. We know from 1 Timothy 2 that Paul says there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So when Jesus mediates for you, as we'll learn next week, we are declared righteous. We're declared to be in right standing with God. So send your pride where it belongs. Where does it belong? in the pit of hell come humbly this morning and receive the work of Christ on your behalf and I've speak to non-christians and I speak to christians we need to do what we need to do with our pride well that's our third point today as we go into this week and that is that the work is complete so our posture is to rest you believer can't add a single thing to what's been done for you at calvary isn't that good news we're going to celebrate good friday this week and the resurrection on sunday and We're going to be reminded once again in both of those services that the work is finished. You don't need to fulfill the law. And there's good news, guys, you couldn't even begin with. Uh, You couldn't even fulfill it to begin with. Doug Wilson says the law, whether found in the Torah or cited elsewhere in the Old Testament, or seen in the stars or found in the conscience of a Gentile, is incapable of bringing a declaration of righteousness. The law in whatever permutation is simply a messenger of trouble. It's not a savior. It's not a ladder to heaven. It's not a way of making you better than others. God gave it as a surefire instrument of making you worse. All good little Christian kids growing up in a conservative church with strong family values should take note. Wow. See, we're not made right with God with our own righteousness, but the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from law. And so... Rest. Rest in what Christ has done. Rest in your right standing now with the Father. Rest in the fact that Messiah, who was promised and prophesied, has come. Jesus is Lord, and you are now in him. So rest dressed fully in his perfect robes of righteousness. You and I, we are complete in him. So, because of Jesus, you and I are given the greatest verdict ever uttered in the courtroom of God, and that is not guilty. What glorious good news that is for us today. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to sing complete in thee as we think and consider the fact that we are complete in Christ. The work has been done. So Father, thank you for sending your son. We celebrate the finished work of Christ this week. Lord, today may we be reminded that we are complete in you. We're not complete in what we bring to the table. Let me add some of my good works to his finished work. To be sure, we've been created in Christ to do good works, but we've been saved not by our works, but for and to good works. So Lord, thank you that you've done the good work at Calvary. And Lord, you have been risen from the dead. You ascended to the Father's right hand. You're making intercession for us even now, and you're gonna return one day. Lord, we thank you that we have the already but not yet kingdom of Christ. And today, Lord, help us to rest in your finished work as we look to the Holy Spirit to do that sanctifying, perfecting work until we're with you in glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting Shoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.